Maybe that's the place to start. Talk about friendly communities. The Buddha, there's a story about the Buddha where his uh, chief disciple, Ananda, is said to have said to him, is it true that uh, good friends are uh, half of the holy life? And uh, the Buddha is said to have responded, no, Ananda, it's not true. Noble friends are the whole of the holy life. And uh, I think that so much about the connection that we share, uh, both in the real time of being companions to each other here on Wednesday, and as we begin to do things with each other apart from Wednesday, when during the week you remember to bring the package of pasta, whatever it is that you bring for the women in Tahoe. You're connected to us and to the women in Tahoe and to the generations of women and men who have been sitting forever and ever since the Buddha. That really, when you think about the connections, it's the connections that keep us going and the connections that give us courage which is really mostly what I'm talking about these days. You see, I have newspapers spread all around me. And, uh, I've been telling people that uh, my um, perhaps most challenging spiritual practice these days is reading the newspapers mm-hmm. and uh, being frightened about the imminence, apparent imminence of a war, um, being frightened about what I think people don't see about Um, the ways in which greed leads people to go ahead and make war and hurt other people. My own worry that there's so much greed and the anger that comes from, I think secondarily to it actually, the confusion in people's minds. So I've been talking more and more about what is it that gives us courage and strength. I was thinking about um, a lot about a conversation that I had uh, with a friend of mine just after 9-11 last year. I remember the date actually. It was on the Tuesday following, it was one week exactly after uh, 9-11. And uh, we met and had a walk together and we're sitting together and I said, um, at one point, I said, you know, I'm really despairing. Maybe, uh, I guess it was the end of a week in which we'd met a lot together here and held each other up and thought of all the courageous things like the nobility of the caretakers in that situation, the way in which we were all aghast at that kind of behavior that people hurt people purposely. And suddenly I found myself really feeling despairing, and I I remember saying at some point in the conversation, maybe there's too much greed and uh, anger and confusion in the world. Maybe maybe, uh, everything that we believe about the the forces of clear seeing and the forces of goodness and uh, ultimately uh, making a difference, ultimately turning the world around, Maybe it's not true. Maybe there's too much greed and anger and confusion in the world. 
Maybe we should all give up. I remember my friend looking at me and saying in a voice that I, I hope as I say it to you carries some of the sense of um, um, really d- transmission that it did to me. He said, so that, that's not an option. <laughs> it's not an option. Giving up is not an option. It's just not an option. And I got it. It's not an option. We will do this and hope and pray and trust that it will turn around. Whatever. Until the end. If it doesn't, may it not be so. Turn around. I hope that we are amongst the last people who are still hoping that it will and saying that it's a possibility. The last thing that the Buddha said before he died, before his Parinibbana was supposed to be, strive on with diligence. Depending on the translation of it, you read it sometimes as move with confidence into the future. You only have to do the next step and the next step and the next step. You have to move into the whole future. You just have to do this piece and this piece and this piece. And we will all have moments when our courage will flag and um, we'll feel I can't do it. But then somebody else will say, give me a hand, and we'll do a little bit together. And we'll move into the future. I thought about it. um, I thought about it. I remember telling you a few weeks ago that I had been to a, uh, I'd been to a Jubilee celebration at uh, St. Raphael's. You may have been here the day that I told that story. And there were um, 17 nuns who were honored for uh, increments of um, 25 years, 40 years, 50 years, 70 years, and 75 years of profession, religious profession. And they announced them. It was really wonderful. They walked in. They called out each name. You know how sometimes, uh, as I thought about it, the scene has stayed in my mind since then. Uh, You know, when you call out the names of people because they've done something of distinction and they file in, like graduates filing in for graduation or uh, um, athletes being named for having won something or uh, winners of contests, and they call them and they come in. Uh, so they announced them as they walked down the aisle of St. Raphael's Church, right here in San Rafael. And they began with the oldest one, Sister Antoninus, 75 years, little old nun leaning on two people. And I did the multiplication of uh, how many people and how many years came out to be counting all of them, about a thousand years of, uh, of dedication to the idea that uh, love and peace are possible. And think to yourself, that's a tremendous amount of dedication. So their merit is all of ours as well. And one of the things that they did, the whole community of the Sisters of San, uh, Dominican Sisters of uh, San Rafael, which is... Uh, the community to which these women belong, is there were members of the community who, for whom it wasn't a jubilee year, who
who were there for that uh, mass, who at some point at the end were asked to stand. This whole community of women stood up wherever they were in their pew, and they recited together their vision statement, their mission statement, that, um, and then their vision statement for their community, which any of us could say, we reverence and affirm the inherent dignity of each person. We will work for transformation of attitudes and systems that deprive any person of dignity. That could be ours. We could write it on the sign outside of our place here. We're all in that place. What an extraordinary thing to feel aligned with. When the Buddha called his community noble friends, the noble sangha, it's a very noble aspiration. I've been carrying this around with me since then. I like to read it. Also thought about today the fact that um, it's the full moon. Did you notice that last night? Look tonight about uh, it was just after eight last night that uh, uh, the moon rose. So you saw it just over the horizon, uh, and it's enormous just over the horizon. And it's the full moon um, in the month of the year that in the Jewish calendar is set aside for uh, um, a reflection on uh, one's heart. It seems to me that we actually could set aside every month and every day and uh, all the time for reflection on one's heart. But this is a particular time coming up to Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of the year, when people are supposed to be reflecting really on their heart. Where have they been? Where are they? Um, one of my friends likes to ask, how is your heart these days? Hmm. And uh, he does not mean, um, how's your cholesterol? Or, <laughs> are you going to the gym? Or uh, <laughs> can you still run upstairs? <laughs> how's your heart? I think that's the, that's the task that we all have, is how are we going to keep our hearts um, undemoralized? To get demoralized, how are we going to keep them from staying that way? Um, maybe you heard um, our friend and colleague and teacher, uh, Sharon Salzberg, on uh, the radio on Sunday morning. My daughter called and said, hurry up. Sharon's on the radio, listen to KGO. So I did, and uh, she was being interviewed on uh, God Talk on KGO on Sunday morning. It was fun to listen to a Buddhist getting interviewed on God Talk, um, because we don't speak a God language very much. Um, but leaving out that particular word, which has all kinds of meanings for all of us, uh, faith is a universal word, and Sharon's just written a lovely book on faith. And talk about, uh, and what she talked about was not faith, faith in, faith first of all, as something you do, not something you have. You know, faith being that capacity that uh, gets you out of bed in the morning when uh, everything else says to you, it's too late, it's too hard too much greed, hatred, and delusion. 
That's not an option. Faith is what gets you out of bed in the morning and says, whatever it is, I'm getting up and I'm doing my thing. It's in the nature of uh, good-hearted people to get up and make a difference, to minister. I've been thinking of the way in which, the ways in which we minister to each other. Um, the question that everyone is asking these days is, uh, I guess, anticipating uh, September 11th, is um, what did you learn, or how has been this year, or what are you going to do on September 11th, or where were you on September 11th last year? And um, I thought about it a lot, particularly yesterday. Um, I need to write something for the local newspaper about it. And what I thought I would write was something like this. I haven't yet, but I'm making it up. And I thought I would write that everyone is, um, is different since September 11th last year. The world is different. And everyone will remember where they were on September 11th in the same way that people remember where exactly they were when John Kennedy was shot. Uh, if you're old enough, where exactly you were when you heard about Hiroshima. <coughs> if you're really old, where you were when, you, when Pearl Harbor happened. Um, where you were standing, who told you, what you felt at the time. And then what you did for the rest of that day. And because it had been scheduled the night before, I spent last September 11th in uh, Marin General Hospital um, keeping my daughter company as she had the small and safe and sad surgery that uh, needs to be had after uh, a pregnancy that we all thought was viable and celebrated for 14 weeks turned out not to be viable. And um, that was the day that that needed to happen. So we spent the day in Marin General Hospital for that day surgery. And we were surrounded in our personal sad story by the sad stories of the people around us also in four surgeries, most of whom looked um, sicker than she did and probably um, may have had much more worrisome things happening. And their families around them. And then all of us, we were surrounded with them, and then all of us were surrounded by television sets hanging from the ceilings in the public spaces, in all of the waiting rooms. So all of us were surrounded in our personal drama by the dramas of the people around us and the dramas, the drama unfolding in New York. I didn't think of it that very day, but since then, I've thought about the fact that we were all of us in this, in here, my little family together, surrounded by these little families, surrounded by all of New York, surrounded by all of the world, if we had really held it in the perspective of that. Because Emily said to me, you know, compared to the people around me, my story is probably small. And compared to what's happening in New York, this puts it into a perspective. And probably if we'd had that kind of cosmic vision 
of the wars happening in the world before September 11th, since September 11th, ongoing, 32,000 people dying, children, every single day for hunger in the world. We could, everything is in the perspective to something that's larger. Could have really, in any moment, looked with one view and said, the suffering in the world is enormous and endless. This is really what the fundamental view of, of Dharma. Suffering in the world is enormous and endless. Um, everything pales in, in terms of what's bigger. But everything matters just by itself. You know, but in, in, it, it, it was one thing for Emily to be able to say, in the, in the perspective of what's happening in New York, my drama is very small. It is very small. But in the perspective of her personal family, it's a very big drama. And we have the possibility of human beings to feel our personal stories and our personal dramas so poignantly. And I think it's that capacity to feel personally that allows us to look up from ours and see the people around us and care about them and see the story in New York and care about that and see the pain in the world and care about that. I think we learn about compassion from what's happening in our own hearts and we learn it in our own personal relationships. I don't think we learn about it because we hear about it. I don't think we learn compassion vicariously. Nobody says to us, compassion is a good idea, already said, go, let's have it. It comes through our experience of people being dear to us and us being compelled by that dearness to care. Because just as you look out with one eye and you see the suffering of the world, look out with the other eye, you see the whole world ministering to each other. Because the same story we could see, that same concentric circles of suffering were also concentric circles of ministry. That here is my personal family. All they are taking care of, their one personal person in trouble. And each of these other people with their family taking care of them. And the medical personnel in the hospital all getting sideward glances at the TV while carrying on and ministering to the people who were there. It's a very poignant moment, I remember, where somebody was doing some procedure and looked up at the television and said to another one of the medical personnel that was coming by, I would not like to be doing triage in New York today. You know, that we, we, we do what we do, we feel what we feel, and we sense the pain of other people through what we're doing. We know about pain, and we know about ministry, we know about caring. I thought that there was a way in which I could say that each of us, in our own way, experience both stories. We experience the story of the hugeness of sadness and sorrow not in that particular day and the particularities of the people who died. And we could also experience the, the, the infinite resources of compassion in that particular day, the way in which uh, we either felt 
ourselves, somehow caring for people we didn't know, watched with awe about people really risking their lives, thought about all the police and the fire people who died, who in fact had trained in their life to do a job where they knew that was a possibility. They had trained to be fire and police people, knowing that part of the training involved the dedication to be able to risk your life, to be able to take care of people. Think about what the nobility of that profession is. Ministry in its own way. I'll be a minister to people who, uh, whose houses are on fire, whose buildings are on fire. Or I'll be a minister to people whose lives are in danger. Everybody ministers in some way or another. Think about the line in the uh, Metta Sutta that says, just as a mother would give her life to protect her one and only child, just so should we towards all beings boundlessly open our hearts. But I think the being a mother is, I don't say just, I think it's probably the DNA fundamental uh, urge to care that we can all relate to. Each of us had a mother. Um, I think it stands for, it's an icon for the the uh, universal um, impulse to care. I think it happens in men just as it does in women. And they aren't mothers. It happens with people who don't have their own children. The impulse to care will move to care. Not caring is not an option. I was telling people the other day, the other night, I had just read a, uh, an article in this week's, uh, well, last week's New Yorker. Here it is. It's the one with the ice cream cones on the cover. Um, an article by Adam Gopnik on cooks and uh, the, the whole issue on cooking. It's an article about um, being with master cooks in New York and uh, going to the farmer's market with um, with two cooks very early in the morning. And he said all the cooks, there are six cooks that he particularly profiles in that article. And he said they're all disciples of Chez Panisse. I felt very proud of us. We've, we, it's a, we apparently live in the Mecca of, uh, of cooking. So you all know that to be a, a disciple of Chez Panisse means to uh, know to go to the farmer's market. And sounds like a new uh, uh, an order, you know? <laughs> a religious order, the disciples of Chez Panisse. <laughs> you, go to the, you go to the market early in the morning and uh, you buy only local produce carefully nurtured and breathed on by local farmers <laughs> with organic soil and all the right things. So he goes to the farmer's market in New York and he said, um, one of these two cooks that he went with said, uh, talking about what they were looking for, he said they hardly touched things. They just went around and looked at things and they could tell. And someone said, expertise is not seeing all that there is. It's seeing what you're looking for. 
and I thought, hmm, well, I thought that's an interesting koan. Um, because if someone had asked me, uh, what do you think mindfulness is, or expertise in mindfulness, I would have said, seeing all that there is. I would have gone for the first. I would have said, you know, that uh, um, I would have quoted the third patriarch of Zen, to know the truth, only cease to cherish opinions. If you have a certain view of how things are, that view will limit what you see. And since I want to see, and I want to see everything that there is, and if I can see everything that there is, then I'll be able to have a clearer, uh, fuller picture of what's going on. So kind of like Picasso, I want to be able to see the front and the side and the top all at the same time. So all the views, and I don't want to be attached in any bags. I would have gone with door number one. I think this is the right answer. But I, I, but I thought about the other one. It's, uh, expertise is seeing what you're looking for. I thought, hmm, uh, okay, could I do that not instead of door number one, but in addition to? Could I make them both? Could I make them both true? I said, what is it that I am looking for? Um, and I think what I am looking for, and this is looking for in order to keep my mind from falling into complete despair, which is what I think is the opposite of faith. This is what Sharon said on the radio this morning. She said, the other morning, she said, um, doubt is not the opposite of faith. Despair is the opposite of faith. And that I liked very much. I thought about that a lot. That giving up hope, not getting out of bed, uh, not, not remembering that not doing on behalf of all beings is not an option. It's just not an option. Um, so I thought to myself, what I need to have is the ability to see in everything that's going on, what is the redemptive clause here? What can I look at in this picture that will lift it up? Remember, well, we did it a couple of weeks ago with the, with the story of the miners that were um, trapped in that mine for three days. So if you really just read the top story, it's a story of tremendous courage. If you look through the top story, you can see the really sad story about why are people mining coal, risking life and limb and atmosphere and biosphere and everything else when we have clean fuel that we could do instead of. But then if we look through that, which is the level of uh, demoralizing news, we can see that there are people all over the place working very hard to get people to know that there are alternatives to the fuel situation and that we can change it. That, that some pe- and there are two pieces of that that are so important to me. One is that there are alternatives already available. It could happen. If I tell you and if you go home and tell everybody, and if they tell everybody they know that if we keep the thermostat at 68, change all the bulbs from iridescent to fluorescent, and do not drive SUVs, we could end the dependence on Middle Eastern oil. And everybody did it. They would do it. That would be starters. That would be before the kinds of amazing new physics that will make uh, energy out of nothing at all, and things that I don't understand but that I know are happening really requires, though, that we said that not doing it is not an option, that we all go home and tell everybody and, in fact, do it. 
how to see, so it requires seeing through that picture of why are they in the mind to begin with, which is a picture of greed, to a picture of people have not yet given up faith. There are some people out there still doing it, still letting people know, still um, doing the equivalent of standing on street corners and shouting out the good news, except they're doing it in uh, email newsletters and snail mail newsletters and ads on television stations. And then you see other people are still out there, so I could get out there too. I could get out in whatever way I could get out. There's two stories. Story that there's an alternative to the fossil fuel degradation of the planet and of life, and that there are people who are still convinced that enough people can hear about it and get changed. And that we'll have the capacity to wait. You know, this, I've, I've been carrying around a photo with me uh, for uh, years. I don't have it with me today. You see, there are certain, oh, half a dozen one-pages, maybe a dozen, that I carry with me when I go on a teaching trip. I'm about to go on a teaching trip, you know. I'll be here next week, but then I'll be gone for the better part of the next couple of months. And um, I go without notes and make up my mind about what I'm going to talk about from place to place. But there are ten pieces of paper that I take with me. One is a chart of the paramitas that uh, I work from when I teach. Another one is the poem by Pablo Neruda about let's all sit quietly and count to twelve. Um, another one is a photo taken oh, probably 80 years ago of the major physicists of the world, Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, um, maybe uh, 18 or 20 physicists sitting. Um, Let's say there are 20. 19 of them are men. Marie Curie is over here in the corner. There are two ways to look at that picture. You can look at the picture and say there's only one woman there. But you can look through the picture and in your mind's eye, know that at least 50% of the graduate school people now are women in all the graduate schools. That this is the old picture and the new picture has happened. That we can see that change happens slowly over time. That it wasn't true then, but that women had equal possibilities. But here's 80 years later, and we can see the picture past there, and we can be mad at what was there. Well, we can say, look, it made a difference. People were mad. People were awakened about this isn't right. And people carefully and over time said, this doesn't go. So at least here, it's different. I can look in yesterday's paper. It's always a choice of where do I stop the looking. And I think that what I want to end this sentence with, I might say a bunch of clauses in between, (laughs) is that the looking never stops. Because if you stop anywhere, it's the wrong place to stop. If you read in yesterday's paper, the top top, uh, article in the paper says, combatants in African nations may soon give peace a chance. Hope is emerging, is this bottom headline, at several negotiating tables. And it says, um, the the conflicts in Sudan, Burundi, Congo, and Somalia are all now at or heading for the negotiating table. Wars that were raging in Angola, Sierra Leone, 
and between Ethiopia and Eritrea, all have been settled. Talks are going on in Kenya, aiming to add uh, end Sudan's civil war, modern Africa's longest. There's a whole article about peace is getting given a chance. Uh, however, if I read the bottom piece of the paper, there's a beautiful picture of a very beautiful woman with a child who was sentenced to death uh, because of uh, because her baby is born without her being married and death by stoning in with um, in a country now being really held with religious law about stoning being that death in our age. An assigned reading in the Koran in uh, Chapel Hill raises hackles. Did you read that yesterday? You think to yourself, how can people be doing this? Objecting to um, teaching people about really the, the breadth of Islam and the fact that Islam actually, the word Islam means peace. And it's a really a a very complex and enormous religions, religious practice. And the interest in religious lo- uh, learning, the interest in Islam at uh, Chapel Hill picked up enormously after 9-11 because people wanted to know what is in the Koran and what is Islam. It's a tremendous movement to learn about it. This is a latter-day response to uh a latter-day parochial response. But if you read the article, you find that the students at school there are saying, no, no, no. We want to hear a diversity of opinions. We want everybody's opinions to get heard. To keep reading, to find what is the redemptive sign? Who is going to pick up in any place? Who is going to pick up that woman who has been sentenced to death? All kinds of movements happening for retrials and for bringing it to other levels, that no one is willing in any of these stories to stay will stop here. There's always a voice that steps up and says, this isn't right. Someone um, in the dedicated practitioner program um, sent me, uh, there's a dedicated practitioner program, some of you are in it, and um, People have homework every month where they uh, reflect on certain aspects of dharma and how they live in their life. And Someone uh, sent me an email about a piece of their homework. Um, and, the piece, and it was a homework on wise intention. And uh, the question was, uh, what are the signs in you? Uh, how do you notice that... Uh, how do you, how do you um, what's your criteria for knowing that your intention uh, in doing something is wise, skillful? This person wrote back uh, various ways in which they reflect before uh, an action. And they said also, one of, and it says something about what motivates your intention, what keeps it strong. And uh, their answer to that question was, I feel so terrible when I don't do it. 
in a way that's wise or skillful. And I don't think that's uniquely this person. I think that that's actually the, the, the birthright of human beings. When we do something that's not consistent with our good heart, we feel bad about it. It hurts us. I think that's true for most people. You know, that's the question one of these days that people keep asking about how do you not lose faith? How do you uh, um, look at all the numbers of people who are uh, eager to do war or eager to uh, exploit? I think there are probably numbers of people who are swept up in confusion by anger and um, parochialisms and fears and uh, greeds. But I don't think they're most people. I, 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 I am consoled by um, really my irrevocable faith that people have good hearts, that if any of us got up in the morning and found a basket with a baby on our front steps, with a note that said, please take care of this baby. We would. We would do something with it. We would take it in. We would minister to it. You see it when somebody, um, every once in a while, there's a, a you know, the, one of those stories that, well, the, the miners were an example of it. People stayed up till one or two in the morning seeing that the live video of bringing one miner after another up out of the ground when a life is saved, you don't have to know whose person, whose life it is. You feel good about it. Every once in a while, there's a story about a child who falls down a well or in some desperate situation. And the whole country stops for days and watches the TV to see when that child gets brought out of there. Because it doesn't matter if you know the child or you don't know the child. It could be down the street a child, and it could be in Philadelphia a child. But it's somebody's. And we know the feeling of when somebody is okay. You know, the numbers of people... Um, somebody told me yesterday um, that their three daughters were um, driving a U-Haul to Bloomington, Indiana. One of the three daughters was starting law school there. And all three daughters were driving all her worldly goods in this U-Haul to Bloomington to install her there. So when my children were doing this, um, it was before cell phones, really. So we had to wait until they got somewhere they can call. She said, we're getting hourly reports. We're cruising through Texas. We're going to Oklahoma. And... You know, the, so, so it's the equivalent of getting out of the well. You know, it doesn't have to be the, the well is a cliffhanger, but really it's the same well if you're on the highway in Texas as if you're in the bottom <laughs> one waiting to get. You know, it's the same well all over the place. We are one moment away from anything. I mean, here we are sitting, we could have an earthquake this minute, probably not, but, you know, it's a very fragile thing, life. And realize that we are all waiting for the phone call that's going to say, I'm all right. Um, my younger son uh, went to graduate school in uh, Ohio, and he drove back and forth at the end of every semester and the beginning of the other semester to go back to Ohio. And uh, he'd, uh, 
call and leave a message on the answering machine when he got there all the time. And the message was always the same. If there was a, you know, if we were there. Actually, he probably said these same words to us if we were there or if he left it on the message machine. Get a message that would say, the ego has landed. <laughs> so, <laughs> you have to know where that is. So the ego, but we are all waiting to hear that the ego has landed in the various ways. Someone's at the end of their pregnancy. You want to get the phone call that says the ego has landed. They're going back to college. You want to have the phone call that says the ego has landed. Whatever it is, they're going home and you want to, and they leave your house and it's late at night. You want to hear that the ego has landed. Whatever it is, they have a surgery somewhere. The ego has landed and it's okay. That's really what we all want to be reassured about. I am convinced that everybody really has quite simple needs. We think we have enormous needs, but I don't think we do. I think we want to know that the eagle has landed, that we got home, that we fed our family, that we sat down with them, that we weren't worried about going to sleep. There's a prayer that, um, part of the liturgy that I know that says, may I lie down in peace and wake up in peace. Everybody wants to lie down in peace and wake up in peace. That's all. With their family, with enough to eat, with something to do during the day that makes them feel good about being alive. Everybody really wants to be a minister in some way, to take care of somebody else. Because you feel good when you do it. You know, when you do somebody a favor and they say thank you, and you say it's a pleasure. It is, you know. It's not. It's not a. It's not an idle kind of a comment. Well, the pleasure is mine. It is. Because it's a very hard thing to have a life. I know. I tell you quite frequently. It's one of my grandfather's favorite lines: "Big breath in, big breath out." <sighs> He'd say. It's very hard to be a person. <laughs> it's extremely hard to be a person. Life is difficult. It's the, it's the latter-day version of what the Buddha taught. It's very hard to be a person, by which he meant it's very hard to be decent and kind and courageous and get up the next day and have faith and do it again in spite of all odds. Anything else is not an option. It's just not an option. So one of the things that, um, one of the other things I was going to talk about, the, the way in which every recognition I have of the fact that we are wired to be empathic gives me so much confidence in that the world is going to survive you may have read in the newspaper the other day that um, improbably Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods lost by one point to Rich Beam at a, at a national golf tournament. It's a very surprising thing. The most extraordinary golfer in generations, maybe ever, Tiger Woods. Wonderful to watch him. What was especially wonderful to me was to read the interviews with him 
and with Rich Beam, who he beat by one, who beat him by one stroke uh, afterwards, because Tiger Woods said um, he played a really great game. It was such a good thing to say. You know, you could have said, I don't know what you could have said, I was having a bad day or something or other. He said he played a really good game. I think to myself, people are so good. You know, that's really a good thing to say. People are so good. And Rich Beam, they said, uh, you know, they were interviewing him particularly because part of the mystique is that nobody can win because everybody's sure they're going to lose. And they get all clutched up around the, around the end, of, especially coming into the final part. So the, the part of the mystique has been that no one can win because they're so clutched up. So in the interview with Rich Bean, they said uh, 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 they were they were one whole apart playing in in terms of they go in groups. He said, uh, "Were you thinking about what Tiger Woods was doing?" And he said, "No." He said, "I was only thinking about what I was doing," and he said, "And I was worrying about throwing up." <laughs> <laughs> And it's so dear, you know, you think he's going to say, you know, that he's going to say, I had it all under control, I knew I could do it. <laughs> so I, was I was worried about puking, is what he said, actually. <laughs> and you so feel that, don't you? I mean, here you go, you're coming into the final thing. And they tell exactly how... He could have tried for this, you know, done it this way, but he did the careful putt in order to be in by one stroke rather than really not be careful and win by two. But it is, it's very breathtaking to read about. So I was worried about puking. <laughs> and we all are, you know, and you feel you know, somehow you know, that I won't be able to hold it together, that I'll make a fool of myself, that people will discover that I'm not on top of it. You know, people will discover, you know that, ex that expression, I'm not, so-and-so's on top of their game, you know, has it all under control, that someone will discover that we don't, we're not all of us on top of our game. We are none of us on top of our game, <laughs> ever. One step away from whatever. But it's so dear to read that. And I think to myself, I read the newspaper to find out what's going on, I also read it in, because it just, I get so inspired. I get terribly, terribly hurt about what's going on that's not good. So painful to read about that woman condemned to death and realize that it's not just there and in that country, but all over the world. I can look at that picture of uh, uh, Eve Cur uh, uh, Marie Curie. Eve Curie? Marie Curie, Marie Curie, sitting there with those 19 men, and I can either think the plight of women in the world, in much of the world, is not even up to one woman in a picture with 20 men. Not even with a woman's face sticking out in some places. But when they met in Bonn to form the interim Afghani government, they showed the picture of all the men in suits. There was one woman there. And that was the first woman there. And her face was not veiled. Her head was covered in keeping with Islamic 
tradition, but her face was showing. And that's one woman more than used to be. And if I think now that 50% at least of people in graduate school in this country are women, I can't only think that. I have to think about the fact that this woman is being condemned to death and that all over the world women are veiled. But here, something happened already. And people made it happen. It didn't happen by accident. People made it happen. I have such a sense that I individually cannot make anything happen, but people collectively can make it happen by telling each other that it could happen. Don't lose faith. One of the things that moved me tremendously about the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall was that uh, people said that the ultimate cause of the fall of the Berlin Wall was the fax machine because you could stop all other modes of information from getting behind the Iron Curtain, but you can't stop the telephone. And people could keep calling each other and say, don't lose heart. Giving up is not an option. It is possible to be free in this world. Human beings are meant to. And they're meant to take good care of each other. They feel better when they do. Everybody really wants to go home and have a birthday party, really. (laughs) And sit down with their family and feed them and lie down in peace and get up in peace. So I think what I want to do to end is to tell you that um, the Buddha said, strive on with diligence. The um, religious practice of Jews in these uh, 30 days of this month and 10 days of the next month is to read every day the uh, Psalm 27. And um, I have a very wonderful psalm book written by... um, a priest, a monk, Father Richard Gwynn, brother of the Christian schools, from 1938 to 1978, teaching in London, Rome, and Canada, since when he has lived at the Cistercian Abbey off the coast of Wales on the Isle of Caldy. It's a wonderful book. These are the entire psalms, all 150 of them, in haiku. And... uh, The last two lines of Psalm 27. Let your heart be strong and brave. You know, that's the seven. That's the seven middle lines of a haiku. Seventh syllable. Let your heart be strong and brave. Hold firm to the end. So, let your heart be strong and brave. Hold firm to the end. Take a breath in and out. Thank you very much. Yeah.